0: Hi everyone and thank you for joining us for episode 24 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we're going to be talking about the murder of Canadian teenager Jennifer Jenkins. This case is from Canada in the late 90s and at the centre of this entire case is the Jenkins family. Leslie and Brian Jenkins got married in 1974 and a few years later their first child Mason was born. Two years after that their daughter Jennifer was born. The family of four lived in Chatham, Ontario in Canada, and up until 1998, their lives were fairly normal. However, on the afternoon of January 6th, 1998, everything changed. Brian was out at the mechanic getting his car fixed, and Leslie was out too. Leslie received a call from her son Mason asking her when she was going to be home. Leslie said that she was actually just about to meet up with Brian, and that they'd both travel home together within 30 minutes or so. Mason hung up the phone, and Leslie said that she thought he'd sounded completely normal. True to their word, 30 minutes later, at around 5pm, the couple got home and entered their house. All the lights were off, which was very odd, so they flicked them on and started calling out for their children, Jennifer and Mason. Whilst Leslie walked down the corridor, Brian went into the lounge to see if Jennifer was where she usually was, sat in front of the television. To his utter shock, he saw that the chair Jennifer usually sat on was stained with blood. At the same time, Leslie had walked down the corridor to the basement door, and there she also saw stains of blood. Leslie opened the basement door and walked down a few steps. She turned and peered over the banister, and to her complete horror, she saw a body lying on the floor in a pool of blood. She screamed for Brian, who ran down into the basement, whilst Leslie grabbed the phone and called 911. In the 911 call, you can hear Brian in the background crying and screaming for Leslie to call the police, At the request of the operator, Leslie hands the phone to Brian, who can then be heard on the call sobbing and saying, blood is coming out of her. It's on her. The blood has stopped. It's soaked up. She's not breathing. There is no life there at all. The lifeless body belonged to 18-year-old Jennifer Jenkins. At first glance, it appeared that she had been shot in the head and in the stomach. The police arrived at the scene and they immediately wanted to know where Jennifer's older brother Mason was, Both Leslie and Brian were at their wits' end because Mason wasn't anywhere in the house, and the couple were worried that whoever had killed Jennifer might have taken and harmed Mason too. Inside the home, the police found the weapon they suspected had killed Jennifer, a large rifle. Both Brian and Leslie said they'd never seen the gun before, they didn't have guns of any sort in their home, and so they were convinced that someone must have broken in, killed their daughter, and taken their son.
1: And left the gun.
0: Well... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The police, however, weren't quite as convinced, a bit like you, Sal, and they set to the streets to try and locate 20-year-old Mason Jenkins. After a few hours, the police managed to find Mason, and they took him into custody for questioning. When asked in police custody where he had been and what had happened to Jennifer, Mason said that a white van pulled into their driveway and four men got out of it. He said two of the men had guns and all four of the men forced their way into the home and then they grabbed Mason and forced him into the back of the van. By this point the police knew that the rifle found in the home was registered to Mason so they probed him on that point, asking him why his gun was out if he'd just been in the house minding his business before he was randomly attacked. To this Mason said that he had seen them coming, he'd got his gun, he said he then fired at the men but hadn't hit any of them then one of the men had taken his gun off him and then had forced him into the van and kidnapped him. Chatham is a very quiet city that has an incredibly low crime rate. It was odd to the police that Mason was suggesting that he was outside his house opening fire on a group of armed attackers and that not one single neighbour saw or heard anything. Moreover, Leslie had spoken to their son on the phone 30 minutes before they got home and she'd said he'd sounded completely fine. It was unbelievable to the police that these men turned up They had a shootout, they kidnapped Mason, killed Jennifer and then moved her body, turned off all the lights and then left the home without a trace, all within the space of half an hour. Whilst Mason was in one room being interviewed by the police, both Leslie and Brian were in separate rooms also being interviewed. There's a documentary called Life with Murder on Amazon Prime and in this there are scenes of both parents being interviewed by the police just two and a half hours after finding their daughter's lifeless body. It was honestly harrowing to watch. Like, I do understand why the police needed to speak to them, but, you know, these poor parents, they hadn't even had time to process their daughter's horrible, brutal murder. And most families who've lost a child are able to grieve and go through that process. But, you know, these two parents, they just couldn't because in those first few days and weeks, uh, they just had constant police questioning. Mm Mm-hmm. To add even more insult to their injury, the police kept pushing and probing them to find out more information on Mason and the officers made it blatantly clear to both Leslie and Brian that they thought their son had killed their daughter. In his interview, Brian confessed that Mason had had some trouble with the law in the past, but that all of his crimes had been minor non-violent offences. Mason had a string of carjacking and robbery offences under his belt and had even served time in prison for such offences. Brian describes Mason as just being a bit loose and wanting some fun. He actually said that Mason would steal cars off people's driveways, drive them around, and then he would fill them up with gas, wash them, and then put them back on the driveway where he'd found them if he could.
1: I mean, and how old are they at this point, just remind me?
0: Uh, The kids. Yeah. So Mason's 20 and Jennifer, who um, was 18 when she died. Okay. Okay. So Brian said that all of Mason's prior offences had been non-violent and that he'd had no reason to kill his sister. He said that they'd had no problems between them, just, quote, normal brother and sister shit. Whilst all three surviving members of the Jenkins family were being interviewed by the police, Jennifer's autopsy was being carried out. The ME determined that Jennifer had three gunshot wounds to the right side of her head and two gunshot wounds to her chest. Two days into his interrogation, Mason was still sticking firm to his story that random attackers had turned up at the house, kidnapped him and killed his sister. The officer kept saying that he was lying. His story made no sense. He should just tell the truth. During this interview, Mason intermittently sobs and cries and puts his head in his hands and then all of a sudden he's very loud and vocal and giving lots of information to them. He keeps talking about Jennifer, saying that he had no reason to kill her and he kept saying that he wasn't lying. He actually continuously repeats the phrase, I have no reason to lie to you, to which, of course, the officer rightfully so replied with, well, you're being charged with first degree murder. So, of course, you have every reason to lie to me. Mason gets visibly agitated, probably due to the incessant questioning, and he starts getting quite angry with the officer. And then he says, I got no reason to hate her. I got no reason to blow her fucking head off. You know, I got no reason whatsoever to do anything. To which the officer calmly responded, who told you she was shot in the head? This taped interview along with the rifle and the fact that Mason had been the only person in the house and there had been no sign of forced entry was enough evidence for the police and Mason Jenkins was formally charged with the murder of his sister, Jennifer Jenkins.
1: Do you think that that is enough evidence though? Because say he knows that she's been shot because his story is a premise of that men turned up with guns I don't think it's that is that not almost a turn of phrase like blow her head off I don't know is that that incriminating that he said that
0: well if we're going to go by his story and believe his story he implies and he continuously says that he was put in the back he was put in the van and he and then they went in and killed Jennifer so presumably what he's suggesting is that he heard gunshots and things like that so yes maybe you know he could be using it as a turn of phrase that he you know, I don't have a reason to blow her head off. But that's also his sister he's talking about. Like, that's quite a aggressive, violent phrase to be using about someone, you know, you're supposed to be really close to and dearly love. Like, I would never, ever say that about my sister. Do you know what I mean? It just seems, I think it just seemed to the police that it was quite obvious that he was lying. His story made no sense. And they did not for one minute believe that um, he had been kidnapped or anything like that because when they found him, so we kind of go into this later, but when they found him, he was just like joyriding in a car, like with no one. So it was clear to them that he hadn't, you know, he wasn't in someone's van or whatever being held up at gunpoint. Um, so I think they do have enough evidence to be honest. It's quite clear to them that they, there's nothing, you know, there was no one else. There was no other sign of anyone else. And I guess it's kind of what we've talked about in a few other cases, like if it, you know, if it looks like a slam dunk like that, then that's probably what they're going to go with and then start investigating other cases. Do you know what I mean? Like it seemed To them, probably, it just seemed pointless to try and keep pushing this one when it seemed to them so obvious what had happened.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. and I don't think his story does make any sense. I was just slightly surprised that that comment um, was enough for them to progress the, fake, the case forward because so many other times, it seems to you and I, like there's loads of evidence and prosecutors don't, take Mm -hmm. it forward because it's not clear cut or there's no sort of physical evidence as such. Do you know what I mean? So it just surprised me that that was the turning point in this case.
0: Yeah, that's so true, actually. It's very different to a lot of the other cases that we look at. Um, Yeah, I do actually really agree with that. That is really true. Um, But obviously they felt like they had enough to prosecute him. And so, yeah, that was enough for them. Mm. So during the lead up to Mason's trial and during the trial, Brian and Leslie made the decision to stand by their son. Mason was still protesting his innocence and Brian and Leslie decided to believe him. Mm. I don't know if some of you are sat there right now thinking, how on earth can they stand by him? Because I was at this point as well. Um, I mean, that noise makes it sound like maybe you're thinking that too, Sal.
1: Well, I don't know. I think the evidence in terms of, like, the gun and his slightly strange story was no evidence to support it would suggest to me, looking at this objectively, that he probably is guilty. But actually, there are parents who probably up until however long ago adored both their children and they've already lost one of them and whilst it may not be a physical loss the idea for them to accept that their son is a murderer and he's going away for a long time that is another loss that they will have to grieve so i can kind of understand why in the midst of their grief for jennifer they might make what on from the outside seems quite a strange decision to support mason
0: yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. Like initially I was really confused, um, but I think it, I feel exactly like that as well. I think that like, they have just made that decision because, um, yeah, they want to stick by their only remaining child um, mm. rather than kind of overnight lose both their children. Um, I think it's exactly that, to be honest. And I guess also like he's saying that he's innocent, you know, imagine if, you know, someone did come forward and say, oh, yeah, well, we actually did this and Mason you know, it did turn out that he was innocent and they turned their back on him. They'd feel so awful about that. And I don't know if that's just me, like thinking quite naively about the situation.
1: Um, But maybe they
0: were just holding out for that.
1: No, I completely agree.
0: So Mason's trial actually took about three years. There were a lot of legal issues here and there, yeah. And he raised loads of legal issues and that slowed down the whole process massively. He sought actually to have his taped police interviews banned from court, stating that the conversations he'd had with the officers had been coerced. He said that he'd been told by his lawyer not to say anything and that he kept trying to keep quiet in the interview. Um, But then he said the police would make a comment about his mum or his dad. And then he started talking again because he wanted to know how his mum and dad were and whether they thought he was guilty. So he essentially felt like during his police interviews, um, he'd basically been baited by them. Um, So he sought to get those removed from court but it didn't work and the judge and jury were shown his police interviews which to them they found quite damning. Ultimately on the 12th of January 2001 three years after Jennifer's murder Mason Jenkins was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. He continuously protested his innocence and said he didn't do it. His parents especially his father Brian were completely undoubtedly convinced that Mason had been wrongfully convicted. His wider family stood by Leslie and Brian and fought the battle for Mason's innocence alongside them. This was actually heartbreaking for me to watch because Brian especially, you can see it in his eyes, he's so genuinely believed that his son was innocent when he said he was innocent i think he just felt so utterly like heartbroken and distressed that his daughter had been murdered and that his son was wrongfully imprisoned for it and he still felt like her real murderer was out there somewhere and you see it in the in the kind of initial interviews with him he is absolutely convinced that mason didn't do it
1: yeah and i think that's a really key point that you've just made is that it's not only i suppose for them about believing their son didn't do it it's believing that the person who did is still out there and that must be a really horrible feeling for any parent because from their point of view, absolutely no justice has been served for them yet. So, mm-hmm. very sad. Yeah, it's
0: kind of like the double whammy of that, isn't it? No justice has been served, but also in their eyes, a massive miscarriage of justice mm. has happened because their son's in prison for something that he says he didn't do. Yeah, So yeah, it was absolutely heartbreaking to see. And I genuinely mean that from like Brian, really, honestly, he so truly believed Mason was telling the truth when he said that he was innocent. Um, And after years and years of his parents religiously and relentlessly fighting this battle, after all of Mason's appeals were done, and there was nowhere for his case to go, Mason resigned to the fact that he'd have to spend the next 25 years, at least in prison, finally admitted that he had in fact been the one who shot Jennifer This admission of guilt came nine years after he'd killed Jennifer and six years after his trial. And this breaks my heart because that is such an insanely long and torturous amount of time for his parents to have been carrying around all that pain and suffering for, you know, really no reason. He didn't let them grieve properly. I just think it's awful. This whole thing really was kind of like a game to Mason. Um, And unfortunately, this initial confession... Wasn't the end of the suffering for Brian and Leslie because Mason refused to outright confess to what happened. Instead, he essentially drip fed his parents' information about that night and Jennifer's death over the next few years.
1: And it definitely all, well, actually, no, scrap that. I was going to say, I wonder whether he did it to like free them from their pain about the fact that he was in prison. But actually, if he was going to do that, you'd think he would just make up a nice story, tell them all at once and beg for their forgiveness. But if you say he treated it like a game, then obviously he just wasn't the son that they thought they had.
0: Completely. It is 100% like a game. None of it was for his parents' benefit whatsoever. All of it was just for him to kind of keep them on hooks. it seems. And um, yeah, I mean, as we go on to tell the story, you'll kind of see the extent of, you know, what he does and what he says. Um, But the first snippet of information that he revealed after he confessed his guilt was that Jennifer's death had been an accident he said that he had put the rifle, um, so it was his rifle, and he said that he put that on top of the coat rack and that he'd then gone to grab it to carry it back upstairs and that as he went to grab it, he knocked it and as the gun fell off, it went off and shot Jennifer in the head. He said it was a total accident. I mean...
1: How would the angles of that even work?
0: Well, I don't know. Because she... So basically, so you see the inside of the house and like the coat rack is outside in the hallway and, um, they have like an archway into their lounge. Um, so would the angles work? Like, I mean, it would have to be like an incredibly kind of like perfect coincidence that the angles would work. Um, but I mean, just in general, like saying this was an accident, like he didn't call 911. He left the house. He kind of waited for shots. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. He, he shot her five more times. Well, he shot her five times. He shot her four more times. Um, But in this first initial confession or whatever we can call this, in this first initial story that he tells, he never explains why there were four more shots. He refuses to explain anything about that. He just says that it was an accident and the gun went off accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, you know, just one of the many stories and all kind of fabrications of, of the truth. And over the course of the documentary, Life with Murder, the producer follows the family and, you know, follows them to prison to visit Mason and that kind of thing. Um. So actually, yes, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that even after his confession that he did do it, even after refusing to give his parents any kind of real information or closure about what had happened that night or why he did it, um, Leslie and Brian still stuck by Mason and continue to support him and visit him and things like that. Um, And they actually never once turned their back on him.
1: So but they did acknowledge, though, it wasn't like they were in complete denial. They just said, okay, you did a terrible thing, but we'll be here for you anyway.
0: So in the initial instance, so, um, the documentary follows them and the kind of the other things that I've like researched on them, everything follows them for years and years and years. And in the very, you know, in the initial kind of, uh, so his, obviously this initial confession is like nine years after Jennifer's died. So like the few years after that, Brian is absolutely convinced that, um, it was an accident, and he's like, "Yep, yeah, just a terrible accident. Really, really sad." Leslie is kind of not what? as convinced. Yeah, well, I know Leslie's not as as convinced. She's kind of just like, um, but she's kind of uh, got that. sounds a bit harsh, but she kind of just sticks her head in the sand. She kind of has that attitude towards it. She's, Mm. she says basically, um, I know that Jennifer died that night and that she died as a result of, of gunshot wounds. And that's all I need to know. Like we don't know any more information. Mason's not told us any more information. And I don't know if she's behaving like that or saying those things because she doesn't want to play his game. Um, but I'm not really certain that she's kind of aware that he's playing a game. So I don't really know if that is why she, she is like that, but he Mason continuously says, "I don't really know why everyone wants to know why I did it. I did it, and that's all, and that's all you know. You need to know." And his parents just kind of accept that. And I don't Which know if that's can... naivety or what.
1: No, I think you can sort of understand that because it still goes back to they don't want to lose their second child and believe that he really is like this awful person. And actually, yeah, ignorance is bliss. I know it sounds a trivial phrase to use here, but I think you can very much see it from from the sounds of what Leslie's saying, that she knows what happened. The end result doesn't change from them knowing what happened. If they want to imagine, as implausible as it is, that there was no intent from Mason on that night and it helps them sleep better at night and it helps them cling on to their remaining child, then, yeah, I can kind of see why they might be behaving in this way. What I do think is really nasty from Mason is if he can acknowledge, I don't know why everyone wants to know, to know why why does it matter why does he go on to tell them do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like to be honest I think he could have easily stayed quiet his whole life and maintained his innocence if he cared at all about his parents or fine just admit you did it and say I'm not going to tell you why I'm not going to answer any questions I just need you to stop fighting for my innocence for my freedom do you know what I mean I just think clearly he's a much more horrible man than we thought
0: Yeah, I mean, he is obviously incredibly manipulative and he does manipulate them for years, for decades. And I can see what you're saying, to be honest. I guess, yeah, ignorance is bliss. And maybe genuinely that is all Leslie needed to know, because she does say that, you know, she's like, this is all I need to know. It's like, you know, Jennifer's gone and she died because of a gunshot wound. And, you know, Mason says that he's guilty. And and that's kind of just how matter of factly she says it. But I guess everyone processes grief and trauma in different ways. And maybe that is just her way of processing it.
1: Yeah and I think the other thing as well to touch on is that and I think we've talked about it in other cases is that for Leslie and Brian admitting that Mason is a monster is admitting that they be it genetically or through their raising of him you know they created that they're in some way responsible so I think Mm -hmm. for them it's much easier to admit that whatever yeah, whether it's your DNA or your parenting, they don't want to admit that they created a boy who would have intentionally cold bloodedly murdered their other child, mm-hmm. do they?
0: No, that's actually really true. That is so true. And I guess there's nothing they can do about it now, is there? You know, they've they've lost yeah. essentially both their children, um, you know, in different ways. But yeah, I guess they're kind of just just getting on with their new normal, maybe. Yeah. So later on in the documentary, Mason is preparing for his parole hearing. Um, he has a parole officer who kind of questions him as the board would and assesses his answers. She probes him and tells him that the board are going to want to know why he did what he did. Again, Mason repeats the story that it was just an accident. She actually pushes this and says, come on, like, this doesn't really ring true. Jennifer was shot five times. You didn't shoot her accidentally five times. You know, you moved her body to the basement. You didn't try to help her. You didn't even call 911. And Just touching on that, something else that I read in the court documents, actually, that I found really interesting, and it wasn't something I'd thought about. um, But Mason's gun was a one-shot rifle. um, And basically, that means that he had to reload the weapon each time he shot. It's not like a normal gun where you could just say, unload all the bullets into someone in seconds. He physically had to reload it every single time he shot it. um, And he shot her five times. And so to me, that just means he had so much time to process and think about what he was doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the the first shot presumably definitely didn't kill her because it's not like he's just manically firing shots with no attention Mm. to be reloading his gun. Either he's, I don't know, getting a huge pleasure out of it or actually at some point there was a moment in which instead of shooting her again, he could have called 911 and possibly saved her life. And that would be an accident. Mm -hmm. But to keep reloading and to ensure that she was dead. Yeah, absolutely. No no accident there is there and in fact the opposite a huge amount of malice and intent to me yeah absolutely i think
0: there is obviously so much intent um with with that action of having to reload the shotgun and so the parole officer actually pushes him on this and says to him you're not getting out of here if that's the story you give them you need to tell the truth so at first Mason says that he shot her more times because he panicked and he wanted to make it look like someone else had done it or someone had broken in. Um, he implies that the first shot did kill her um, and then he panicked. He thought, well, someone wouldn't come here and, sh- and shoot like once. I'll make up this story about four men and I'll shoot her four more times. Um, And, you know, once again, this appeared to be a lie to the parole officer. And also she said, like, that looks really, really bad if you're saying that you accidentally shot her. And within seconds you were like, oh, right, okay, I'll just shoot her more times and pretend that someone has, you know, broken in. And you didn't even try to administer first aid or you didn't try to call an ambulance, anything like that. So then he changed his story again. And he said the reason he had shot her more times was because she had been wounded and was in lots of pain. And he likened it to putting an animal out of its misery. And when you genuinely think about that deep enough, it's honestly enough to make your stomach turn. Because he's talking about, you know, not only an actual human being, but he's talking about his sister.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And whether he, whether this is true, or whether he's making it up, either way, these are not the words of like a rational, coherent man.
0: Oh, absolutely. Not at all. Because that isn't a rational thought, is it? It's like, oh, I've accidentally shot
1: her. Oh,
0: now I just put her out of her misery rather than trying to stop the flow of blood or trying to call an ambulance or anything. It's just, oh, it's, yeah, disgusting.
1: Yeah, and I just think it's an insight into probably how his mind works that he doesn't necessarily distinguish between human and animal life, etc.
0: Oh, that's also true. Yeah, that's really true. Um, So over the years after this, uh, Mason still teased his parents, constantly stating that there was more truth behind Jennifer's death that still hadn't come out and that one day he would reveal it all. Um, by this time, actually, Brian was seriously very, very poorly. Um, I know that he had diabetes and I'm not sure if he had any other illnesses, but you can see it in the footage. Um, he's, he's very unwell and he's very frail. And all that time, whilst Brian was visiting the hosp- um was visiting the prison, he was in and out of hospital. Mason is just toying with them and they just still blindly stick by him. They blindly love him, you know, regardless of this awful behavior. But eventually, in 2009, a decade after the murder, the truth of what happened that night came out and it was actually more shocking than anyone could have imagined. When the police arrived at the scene when Jennifer had been murdered, they'd found two will and testaments on the dining room table in the names of Brian and Leslie Jenkins. These were both shown to Leslie and Brian a few days after the murder and both of them said that they had never seen them before in their life and neither of them had a will. Both Wills left everything to their surviving spouse, and then, in the event that both Leslie and Brian died, both their estates would go to Mason Jenkins. From the outset, the police had always had a theory that Mason had planned to kill both his parents and his sister that day, but that his plan had been foiled when Mason had rung his mother and she'd revealed that she'd be home soon with his father. This theory was finally confirmed by Mason as being the truth. On Christmas Day 1997, Mason had been released from prison where he'd been serving time for a minor theft charge. He said that he was feeling under a lot of pressure from his parents and his wider family, especially because it was Christmas time. He said that at this point he'd had his first thought of killing his parents because he felt like he'd been incredibly unsuccessful in life. He said that he felt that if his parents died, at least he'd no longer have any pressure on him. And then he'd also have financial stability as he'd have their money. And he also said that with that newfound money, he felt like he would finally earn the respect of others. Mason said that he was really ticked off with his parents and he was fed up of always being so unsuccessful and for them to like put all their doubt and blame on him. He said that if his parents were dead, he would have a fresh start. He would have nobody to be accountable to and no authoritative figure in his life. On top of that, of course, he would get their money provided he forged a will for them. So that is what he did. He forged the will and he planned to kill his parents. He still maintains that he never meant to kill Jennifer and that it had been an accident, but I wholeheartedly believe that to be a lie. He went into the lounge where Jennifer was eating her popcorn, watching her soap, and he shot her five times. He then moved her body into the basement so that when his dad came home, he wouldn't see her dead in the lounge. After moving her body, he phoned his mum to see how long she'd be until she came home and it was during this call that Leslie revealed that she was coming home with Brian and this revelation undoubtedly saved their lives. Mason panicked because he couldn't kill both of them with his one rifle because he had to reload it before each shot and he said it was too risky and that's when his plans changed and he decided to run. Mason said that he ran to his cousin's house and took one of her horses and saddled it. He then rode it away around the city. He actually what? claims that yeah, no. he actually claims that he wasn't trying to run away because if he was he said he wouldn't have stolen the horse because it was too obvious riding around the city on the big animal but i mean Ooh, i don't really? believe that for a second i think he just stole it i I, do, I can't believe that he stole it to like take time to clear his head after he killed his sister like, he quite clearly was trying to get away
1: well but also i just think you can't give um you can't give people too much credit like he for all intents and purposes might just be quite stupid
0: well, yeah, and this is but this is what I mean. Like, I don't, he's claiming that he just stole it to, like, clear his mind. Do you, do you yeah. I think that he, he obviously was trying to get away at that point.
1: Yeah, exactly, and just made a very poor choice, got on the horse and thought, God, I should have stolen a car.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually what he does next. So he rode the there horse to the end of... <laughs> He rode the horse to the end of the street, um, so the end of his street, about an hour after he'd killed Jennifer, and he saw all the police cars outside his house. He said at that point he panicked because of the police presence, and he dumped the horse, and he stole a car and drove away. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know why he went back there, but I can only presume that he went back there to see if they'd found her body yet, because...
1: Yeah, curiosity, I think, and stupidity. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think it's definitely curiosity. But I don't know why it
1: panicked him, because... I. Yeah, did he not at any point anticipate there could be a large police presence? Yeah, I don't know. And why wasn't he already panicked?
0: <laughs> I know, was he was just trotting around on his horse. Um, So this was where he eventually got caught by the police and taken into custody for questioning when he stole this car and he was like joyriding it. So this was quite difficult, but, you know, during the interviews, Mason's saying all this. He's saying to his parents that he was going to kill them. And he has absolutely no qualms about admitting to his parents that he wanted to kill them.
1: But then he must have a few, because it's taken him over a decade to admit that, hasn't it?
0: Well, yeah, but I don't think that he did that because he was, like, feeling remorseful or he was feeling, you know, awkward or anything. I don't think he felt any emotion about it. I think the whole thing was just a game to him. He's like smiling when he's saying this to his parents. He's saying it honestly like he's talking about the fact that he was going to go out and get a takeaway pizza that night or something. He's so calm to them. Yeah. And I
1: wonder as well maybe if a part of him, I don't know, believed he could still somehow pull off his plan for maybe at least sort of five years after Jennifer's death. Like, I wonder if, yeah, any part of him thought, if I can just keep them on side and mm. there's a chance I can get out of prison, maybe I can actually get away with all of this.
0: No, I definitely agree. I think that he probably did, which is probably why his initial confession didn't come until after all his appeals were exhausted.
1: Mm.
0: Um, But despite this and, you know, despite the fact that he sat there and he told his parents that he absolutely planned to kill them, um, they still stuck by him. His wider family, however, did not stick by him and they couldn't actually believe it. They were also just so angry for him confessing all of this to his parents at a time when Brian was so poorly um, because this was a time when Brian really needed his mental strength more than ever. Mm. Paulette, who's Mason's aunt, said that he should stay in prison until he dies because she said there is no price or time that can be put on Jennifer's life.
1: Good, Paulette.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Brian ultimately said that when he learned that Mason's plans had been to kill all three of them, He said he finally had some clarity and he said at least it made sense. Which I've seen a lot of people online making comments about the fact that Brian says this in this interview. But I can kind of understand it from his point of view, you know. Like I can kind of see why to him, Mason finally admitting this, did bring some clarity to him because albeit it's an awful reason, but it does make sense. It makes more sense than just, oh, I picked up the gun and it accidentally went off. Like the fact that he had this plan to kill all three of them and live off their estate and stuff. I mean, it's an awful plan. It's a terrible plan. Um, but do you know what I mean? At least it is a plan. Like he, there was a reason for why he did it rather than just like a random act of, you know, violence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think in if you look to other cases where you took say the family relationship out of it to say like it's not your son on trial answers a lot of the time are calming and they do provide a sense of relief to the parents of a victim etc so i think even though it must be awful to know that the plan was actually your son trying to kill you ultimately brian and leslie have you know they have got answers and the fact that they do have a yeah, absolutely, this story, this turn of events on the night that makes sense, I can imagine that that in itself would be some kind of solace.
0: Absolutely, I think that it is, and yeah, that's so true. Like, just having a a kind of timeline, a, a storyline, and a kind of, like, a reason for it can be very calming, I think. On the anniversary of Jennifer's death every year, the family had a phone call to speak to each other about Jennifer and to remember her in that way. One of these calls was recorded in the documentary and honestly, it was hard to watch. Brian looks like he might be in a care home or a hospice or a hospital or something like that um, when Mason rang him from prison and he started speaking to him. Brian is very monosyllabic in his responses to Mason. For example, Mason asks him, um, is Aunt Trish going to come and pick you up from the hospital tonight? And Brian says, yes. That's all he responds with. He just goes, Yep. And Mason then goes on to say, "That's one thing I'll miss. I won't have Jennifer around to do those things for me later on in life." um He also then goes on to say, "Mom always said that once you guys are gone, and me and Jennifer will only have each other. But now, when you guys are gone, I won't have anybody." And this entire time, Brian is on the other end of the phone, just you know, giving no kind of like response to any of this. It's obviously breaking his heart. It genuinely is, and I can't believe Mason's like saying it. It. To to me, it genuinely looks like he's playing a game with them, and I don't know. Like to sit there and be like, "Oh, like it's really sad. Like I won't have Jennifer around to do these things for me in the future, and to come pick me up from places when he's the one who took her life." It's just it's heartbreaking to watch. And Brian really is so, so clear at this point. He's so frail. He's so ill. He just cannot handle it, and he basically just like. He's like, Yep, okay, right. Um, I've gotta go now and just like passes the phone over to Mason's mum, um or to Leslie. And I don't know, it just makes my skin cruel that he was kind of saying things like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All of his own doing and oh no, very horrible. And just to be honest at this point, I mean, I stand by everything I said earlier, but at this point, why on earth are they still on the phone to to this person? Like it's they're old their health is suffering they've been through so much emotional pain you just think god hang up like if this is really what he's choosing to say to you on the death of the anniversary of your daughter's death then god son or not son just hang up the phone to him
0: i know and that's i think that is what is so hard for like a lot of people who kind of know this case and people who have commented on this case they just they cannot believe that to the very, very end, Leslie and Brian, they always stood by Mason. Um, But Leslie always uses this phrase where she says, um, you don't just chuck your kids away. She was like, you don't just throw away family. And Brian even said that, you know, his occasional prison visit to visit Mason was all he had left of his family unit. And he said that he wasn't going to throw that away. And I can understand it from, from his point of view. But I mean, honestly, like Mason does not for one second deserve his parents at all. You know, they're so loyal to him and he is just so unremorseful and narcissistic. And not once in any of the interviews does he say, sorry, he doesn't once ever sound like he's remorseful. Like the entire thing genuinely is just a game to him. And I do. it just looks like he's torturing them. That's what he's just doing over these years and years and years. It's like he's reliving his crime by continuously torturing his parents, giving them snippets of information here and there. Um, It's just disgusting. And he's even got like Jennifer's name tattooed on his arm, which... I think is just so awful because I can understand that if he was remorseful and if he felt sorry for what he'd done and he was kind of like memorializing her that way. But to me, it just seems like it's just another sick part of his game. And um, something that actually really stood out to me was in the documentary, he said something along the lines of, although I've been convicted of murdering my sister, it doesn't change the relationship that we had. You know, he doesn't say, although I killed my sister, although I shot my sister. He says, although I've been convicted, which to me, I mean, that is just so clear that he's got no remorse whatsoever.
1: Yeah, he's taking himself out of that equation, isn't he? And making it sound like it's just all external powers that be that have convicted him. Not that there's no action on him there. He hasn't done anything. Something's been thrust upon him, Mm -hmm. like he's been convicted of something. And I wonder a little bit as well, if some of the behaviour we're seeing this far down the line actually goes back to he obviously felt like he had no respect from his parents he wanted everything from them he wanted people to I almost wonder whether he wanted them to fear him a little bit although he used the word respect and actually now he's in prison for the rest of his life he's never going to get his parents estate Um, I slightly wonder whether all of this manipulation is him clinging on to trying to to not feel like a disappointment and to have some control over his family and some power and respect's obviously the wrong word because at this point his parents aren't going to be respecting him, but that's not to say that he might not confuse some of those behaviours and feelings, do you know what I mean? If suddenly his family are still, they're still coming to visit him in prison despite the fact he's done the worst thing and he must get some sort of kick from that and I'm not saying it'd be the same kick as if he got their entire estate, but there's obviously... He's getting some sort of pleasure, isn't he, from torturing his parents all these years after. And I just wonder if that in some way replaces what he was trying to get in the first place by killing them and taking all their money.
0: That's so interesting. I think that's just that. that is such an interesting point. And I think that's actually so true because his entire thing was... Um, oh like my parents like see me as unsuccessful or I feel unsuccessful um, that's a phrase that he used a lot and like yeah maybe he does see this as now being successful because he still got his parents he did the worst thing that he could possibly do in his parents eyes and he still got them they're still visiting him he's still getting that kind of uh, kind of positive reinforcement from them as it were every time they pick up the phone to him every time they come and visit him every time he reveals something awful something abhorrent something worse that he's done or that he was thinking of doing and they still despite all of that they still stick by him so yeah I, I totally yeah. agree with you I understand what you're saying that respect isn't you know maybe the right word but yeah in his eyes he probably does feel like they respect him because otherwise why would they keep going back to see him and I'm saying that as in I imagine that's what he's thinking not you know what yeah I'm absolutely thinking. um mm. so yeah I think that's actually really really interesting point and probably does speak a lot to what is going on you know inside his head um and probably why he has continuously played this game kept them on tenterhooks revealed this information over such a long and torturous amount of time um so that yeah they would continue coming back and things like that Yeah, yeah i definitely i definitely think that's a really good point um so in 2014 mason was eligible to go before the parole board to apply for early release but thankfully his parole was denied He wanted to get out based on a previous law that inmates could apply for parole um, after half their sentence was served. Um, But then this thing came in called the faint hope clause, which uh, put a stricter onus on judges to kind of hold them to a higher standard when screening convicted killers applications for early parole hearings. So Mason felt like he should actually have been held to the previous more lenient law as he'd been convicted before this new law was brought in. But thankfully, the judge refused, um, although his next application for parole will be in 2024. Unfortunately for Leslie, Brian passed away on April the 25th, 2016, um, at the age of 67.
1: Oh God, so young.
0: Mm, So I think he was really, really poorly. Um, I don't know. I know we've touched on it a bit, but this case really, really, really did make me think so deeply about how families are affected when someone kills someone. Like, it made me think a lot about the perpetrator's family, Um, because I think albeit for whatever reason they did it, it did take a lot of strength for Brian and Leslie to carry on supporting Mason. I do really believe that. Um, And, you know, we've discussed it. We can understand why people turn their noses up at Leslie and Brian for ultimately supporting Mason. Um, But I do understand it from their point of view. And I think it's, ultimately people handle their grief and trauma in different ways and i think this was the way that they handled theirs um and you know if it worked for them it worked for them and if it made them feel better then go for it i think i understand why people get arsey about it online and things like that but i do genuinely believe that they did it for themselves and i think that's the only in these situations that's all you can do
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think from my point of view as well, I don't have children yet. I can't. And also, I don't think even if you do, I'm not sure you can speak to what you would do in that situation with 100% certainty, because as Mm -hmm. Leslie said, you live your life. Under the one probable rule that you don't turn your back on your child. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, yeah, having lost their daughter already, I think it would have been really hard for them just to turn around and say, Yeah, Mason's a monster. We're never going to speak to him again. So, but it doesn't surprise me that in a way, maybe that Brian did die so young because I think that is a huge amount of trauma for someone to go through, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And that's what made me so furious when I was watching the documentary because. You know, I've said it a million times, but it so obviously was a game to Mason. But towards the end, Brian just looks so so unwell. Like when he visits him in prison and things like that, um, it's it's kind of weird. But in Canadian prisons, you you can do this. Um, I don't know. You actually might know this because you learn a lot about prisons and stuff at Unisal. But um, they get like a seventy-two hour kind of un. Um, unattended stay. So like they go and stay in this like trailer um, in the prison. So they went and they stayed with him for like 72 hours in this trailer and you know, he's like allowed knives and he's allowed like all these things, um, but every kind of so often they get a phone call where they have to go show their face at the door to like prove that they're kind of still all alive and present and well and stuff. But during that, during that visit, um, very much towards the end when Mason was confessing um, that he would basically planned to kill his parents, Brian is so unwell like he's just wrapped up in a duvet he looks so poorly and I just think how can you do this to your father when he's stuck by you throughout all of this you've done the worst thing possible to your parents and look how poorly he is and you just don't care like you're you're not even trying to save him and you know stop this horrible you know mental anguish that he's definitely going through right now like he needs his strength more than ever and you're just destroying him it just oh it's just awful it's just horrible horrible to watch really really horrible to watch. Um, But yeah, I totally agree with you. It's a lot for anyone to handle. And I'm sure everything, you know, the fact that Mason revealed all this information over like several, you know, decades, it was probably, yeah, probably what was kind of um, attacking Brian from the inside as well as his illness. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to spend an hour and a half of your life feeling totally fuming, then go to Amazon Prime and watch the documentary called Life with Murder, which I'll obviously link below um, and you can see for yourself what Mason's like. Um, But I mean, just kind of briefly, Sal, like, does this sound kind of like psychopathic tendency? Because when I was watching, I really was thinking he's definitely a psychopath.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely some of the hallmark traits there, certainly from what you said. I haven't watched any of the footage and things, honestly, but I mean... So I think there's like a you wanna put people into boxes mm. and things, but actually a lot most of these cases we talk about, the perpetrators have some seriously like abnormal psychology going yeah. on, don't they? And I think most of them have gotta be quite devoid of a bit of empathy. Um, I think this is a particularly strange case just because he seems to go from naught to sixty in a way, doesn't he? I mean obviously he's got a criminal history, but if he hadn't have gone on to murderous sister you probably wouldn't say there was anything that outrageous about a teenage boy joyriding yeah. would you I mean you'd probably just think oh it's just adolescence bit of thrill seeking behavior etc um, but then as soon as you pair it with a very serious crime later on in life then absolutely you do start to wonder some of these things but no I, he does sound of course, like, he's got something going on. As you said, he sounds very narcissistic. Mm. He sounds quite out of touch, to be honest, with reality, frankly. The fact he thought this plan would ever stuck up mm. in any way. Um, I mean, even if it had all gone well, I don't know why he thought he wouldn't be a main suspect if all of his family suddenly yeah, appeared that's dead. that's
0: so true. That is so true.
1: With two wills just mysteriously sitting on the kitchen table. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely a lot of... A lot of points there that might make you start to think in that direction for sure. Yeah.
0: Just thinking about that as well, I can't believe he didn't just take the wills and like destroy them. Do you know what I mean? They just, the fact that they were just sat on the kitchen table, it's just so weird.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he just really believed that none of this, it's basically like just writing a note, isn't it? Effectively, I want all my money to go to Mason. And oh, would you look at that? I've just turned up dead. I really just don't know what he he thought. Neither, neither, not at all.
0: Well, thank you all so much for listening. Um, We hope you have a fabulous week and we will see you next Wednesday for some true crime from Norway. So join us next week for that. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.